As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, September 23rd. Derek Benreiper here with Keith Law on this episode. We'll discuss changes in Kansas City as the Royals have fired Dayton Moore. We'll sort of compare the long-term outlook for the Royals to the other teams in the AL Central since we spent a lot of time on yesterday's show talking about the changes taking place in Detroit right now. The AL Central race becoming less of a race by the day. The Guardians now with a six-game lead over the White Sox. They will play again before this podcast is heard by anybody. So basically a must-win game for the White Sox, and then a lot of wild things have to happen during the final couple of weeks for that division to switch. Let's get to a couple other topics, though. Taking some L's. Uh, I thought Keith had a great story up on The Athletic about a few players he was wrong about. I'll confess to being wrong about several players on this episode as well. So if you want to enjoy us eating crow, that's something we might do a little bit. Is that Will Crow? Oh, no, no, not, not Will Yankees. Crow. The Yankees... Eight will crow. <laughs> John Carlos Stanton got him pretty good. Yes. Yep. Left with the bones. Now, let's begin with the Royals. Dayton Moore out as president of baseball operations, and a lot has gone wrong in a year where they were among the teams that were expected to take a pretty big step forward. They've promoted a ton of young players. The recurring problem that we've discussed on this podcast, it's been written about on The Athletic, it's the pitching development in particular that has really failed in this organization. So how quickly will things change given the direction the Royals are now going with Dayton Moore out as president of baseball operations? I think it was actually Rustin Dodd co-wrote that with Alec. Um, It was a good piece and highlighted one of many problems that the Royals have had. Dayton Moore was there uh, with Kansas City for, I think, 16 years. So... And I may end up writing about this at some point. I'm still kind of gathering my thoughts. This is not an easy, he needed to go. He did a terrible job. He should be fired. He was there for 16 years and there was good and bad. They won. They won two pennants, including a World Series. He had a pretty specific plan. And I would say that he executed that plan very well. Uh, And then 
they tried to rebuild. I might argue they waited a little bit too long. They probably should have traded some of those veterans. But I'm not super upset that they said, you know what, we, we're going to try to squeeze one more playoff run out of this core that won us a World Series. That's not wrong either. Um, and so I think it's complicated. I think it was time for a change. I, the most recent rebuild has gone very poorly. They've had a lot of problems with pitching development. They've had some issues with hitting development too. And I think they've had a hard time figuring out their identity as a scouting and development organization in this second go-round as well. And that is pro- that kind of thing comes from the top. It is less about the people making the picks or the people overseeing development. That is something that a GM or president of baseball ops has to do. Here is our philosophy. Here's what we've decided we are good at as an organization. And here is what we're going to do about it going forward. And I think it is fair to say um, that's the number one thing that if it's JJ Piccolo going forward, who's running baseball ops, and it seems like it will be, and I think extremely highly of Piccolo, um, I would say if that's the case, great. Like I think that he has that's his first order of business now is to decide who are we as as an organization, uh, as a scouting organization, as a player development organization. And um, I would further say also they have just generally been identified by folks with other clubs as one of the laggards in terms of integrating analytics into the rest of R&D, into the rest of their baseball operations. And I think that was a bit of a Dayton Moore thing. Um, they're not in the Colorado situation where they're just 10 years behind everybody else. And I hear that a bit about Detroit too. It'll be interesting with them making a new hire. But Kansas City is clearly below the median and they need to play some catch up. And I won't be surprised at all if Piccolo does push things in that direction, but I also think it's incumbent on him to do so. It seems like there's a, a multi-layered issue there. The Colorado problem being that they don't have people in place to even have an analytics department. And then in mm-hmm. Kansas City, maybe the communication uh, how that information is circulated through the organization and utilized, that might be more of the problem. On some level, yes. I think that's a lot. And you saw it in Rustin and Alex Peace. Like, I think you could see a good bit of that, that it was not it was not showing up on the pitching side. Not only was it not showing up on the pitching side, it wasn't being used at all on the pitching side. I mean, how do you have – Brady Singer has had less than one full season of success as a big league starter – and he's the only guy from that 2018 draft class with two, three, three guys taken in the first 35, I think, college pitchers, Singer, Kawar, and Lynch, and several other promising college pitchers who come into the system and just not developed, um, going from the 18 draft all the way through Asa Lacey in the 2020 draft. And I do think a lot of that is that they're not using all of the available information to guide the development of some of these pitchers, especially a lot of things that other organizations would be doing. Some lower hanging fruit, so to speak. Lynch, to me, is the most obvious example of a guy who I think in most other organizations is already an above average major league starter, and he stalled. He basically stalled when he got to the big leagues and and hasn't been able to get out of that gear. And Singer was stalled for a long time. Cower is stalled for a long time. These guys are just kind of not progressing in that. Maybe that's really job one, but I think that for Piccolo, but I think that ties into R&D too. R&D needs to be more involved in this process. You know, the, the easiest thing is you've got to just overhaul who's overseeing pitching development there, major leagues on down, but it's not just personnel. Again, I think it's process. I think it's much more process. I don't know that Piccolo needs to come in and clean house. 
I think he needs to change the way that people work. And if some people refuse to work the new way, that's a different story. But I would really like to hear if I'm a Royals fan at this point, I'm listening more for changes in process and philosophy and less worried about fire this guy and fire this guy and fire this guy. That's a lot of papering over things when they could be that when there are more serious issues to be addressed. One question we put out there yesterday talking about the Tigers is how many core players does this team have in place right now? And I think that number, no matter where you fall for the Tigers, that number is probably greater for the Royals, at least in terms of position players, because we've seen Bobby Witt Jr. come up and have a lot of success as mm-hmm. a rookie. MJ Melendez has come up this season. Vinny Pasquintino, um, you still have Salvador Perez in the, the back half of his career, so he's not necessarily a core player for the long-term future, even if he's still good now. He's a guy they need to be moving away from. I know they don't want to hear, nobody wants to hear that, but yeah, he's on the wrong side of it. And that's that's the kind of hard decision, though, that I don't know that Dayton Moore was going to make. And maybe Piccolo, even if Piccolo shares the affinity for Salvador Perez, he's the new guy. He gets to come in and say, this is where we're making a change. And people will give him more latitude to make those kinds of difficult decisions. Yeah, it's going to be a tough decision for sure, because he's the face of the modern Royals. I mean, if yeah, he is. Who, who's Mr. Royal for the last 10 years? Salvador Perez is the answer. The, the other big thing we haven't talked about that Piccolo has to decide, the owner has said this is going to be up to Piccolo, is they need a big league manager. And this guy isn't one. I mean, Matheny's now at two stops, shown he's just not up to the task. I understand he's a really nice guy. Everybody really likes working with him. But that's two stops now where players don't get better, teams don't play up to their abilities. It's time to make a change. And in their case, I would say we, we need a strong developmental manager. Hire a guy with positive minor league experience, positive experience working with and developing young players, position players and pitchers. Could be somebody from inside their organization or could be somebody from outside, but that's they, they need a change. Nathaniel ain't it. It was a bad hire to begin with. I think most people agree he was hired for a lot of the wrong reasons. And again, Piccolo can come in and say, I just want my own guy. It's nothing against Mike Matheny, wonderful person, really appreciate everything he did for the franchise, but I want my own person. I don't know why it feels like 2015 was so long ago because it it really wasn't. And as you mentioned, back-to-back pennants. If not for Madison Bumgarner having one of the best World Series pitching performances over a series that we've ever seen, the Royals mm-hmm. might have won back-to-back World Series in 14 yeah. and 15. Amazing series that they had with the Giants in, in 14. And in the years since that World Series win in 2015, they have not finished higher than third in the division. And this is going to mark probably the fifth consecutive season that they've been fourth or lower in the AL Central, which we never talk about as a strong division. So nope, you can start to understand how, despite being there as long as he was, despite the World Series win back in 2015, how and why the Royals were willing to to make that change. And I think you're probably right that with Matheny, you know, he started in 2020. It's been three seasons for him. Even if you want to count 2020 as a partial season or a non-season Two years being almost 20 games below 500 in both seasons, that's not progress. That's not what you're looking for. So I would imagine they're making a change in that spot as well. Uh, But I do like this core group of position players. I do think this is a spot where they can start having some success reasonably quickly if they can address the major issues with pitching. There's talent there. I don't think I've ever heard you talk about the, the pitchers that the Royals have been trotting out there at the big league level, at least that core group of young guys, Lynch being the first one, Singer, 
Jackson Coar. And I don't think you've ever said there's no way these guys are big league starters. No, I think they've got. I just pulled them up. So Sing- Singer is the one I've actually been most bearish on, and I don't think there's really a reason to see that he like. I I don't think there's great um, reason to believe that he's. Uh, going to be able to sustain this going into next year. I have serious doubts about his ability to get lefties out because the pitch mix really hasn't changed. All the issues that were previously there are still there. But that, but that said, say that you want to uh, say that you want to pencil him in as a starter for next year. Great. Chris Bubich should be a big league starter. Command guy with a really good changeup should be a fourth or fifth starter. Daniel Lynch, I think extremely high upside, highest upside of all these starters. Cower, probably bigger questions there because it's command and lack of a third pitch. He's got a great, great changeup, but the breaking ball has been a consistent problem. But there's something there. And Brad Keller, not been great this year, but has some history of being a successful big league starter. I, I think they've got plenty of pieces there to be able to cobble together a decent rotation in the short term that becomes uh, maybe becomes a competitive rotation in another couple of years. It would also obviously be really great for them if they could get Asa Lacey back on track, for example, and you know just continue to see some development of pitchers in the system. But there's enough there on that major league roster. They should be able to put together a, a decent rotation, like an acceptable rotation. Maybe it's not a contending rotation, but an adequate rotation. And if they just get to that point and you know, these hitters keep developing, they're going to be a 500 club in fairly short order and then they can start saying okay now do, where do we go externally to go get maybe that number one starter we're looking for one more big bat somewhere in the line which team's closer to being a playoff club again the royals or the tigers the royals for me now i'll be very curious to see what the tigers do right they've obviously had a pretty significant change in the front office and that is a place where i do think they need to turn some personnel over and they are from my understanding pretty far behind on the r&d side as well and there's more that has to be done in Detroit. And I also don't think, also, th- I mean, they had this pitching core, two are hurt. Um, you know, Scoob will be back sooner than Mize will. And Manning has, he, he's healthy at the moment, but he's been hurt a lot. So I'm not, I, I don't feel very confident projecting Manning to get anywhere near his ceiling in the nearish future. Whereas I look at the Royals, the Royals, they're all healthy, right? They're, it's just, Again, I'm still skeptical on Singer, but if you want to put Singer in the win column for them and say that guy's locked in to a rotation spot, great, do so. There's still Lynch, Coar, Lubich, Keller in there, and other guys who are below them but could potentially hang around as big league starters. You can start to see they're all healthy. Most of them still have the stuff that made them prospects, high draft picks, et cetera, in the first place. Aaron Keller's case that had he had some success earlier in his big league career. It's not crazy to think we could get back to they could get, you know, Keller's case get back to that or get or fulfill the promise that they had. They're all healthy. Whereas with the Tigers, the, the whole pitching plan just blew up on them. Nobody of the guys they were counting on, the four big stars they were counting on to do something for them this year, none of them has been healthy for enough of this season. I don't think you can count on any of those four guys going into next year. Yeah, it's just such a devastating blow to your long-term process when the key pitchers you're going to rely on are missing significant time with those major injuries like that. So I'm with you. I think the Royals are closer. I think the thing that makes the Tigers' job a pretty interesting one is just that they've spent a lot more money than the other clubs in the division, right? So if they get to the point where they put the infrastructure in place, and it it might take longer than Tigers fans want, we'll see – 
how many things the Giants did well uh, that Scott Harris can can kind of impart on the Tigers organization, being mm-hmm. good at turning on the waiver wire, doing things along those lines that make the team better on the margins at a lot of opportunities. That could make them more competitive faster. It doesn't necessarily make them a playoff caliber team two years down the road or three years yeah. down the road. Anything's possible, but I do think it's a, a tougher road in the immediate future there. The Royals are the... Of- you could probably expand this to discussions of a lot of the the you know well below 500 teams, the clear non-contenders neck this year going into next year. If you said to me, all right, pick all of these you know of these six or seven teams, Texas you throw in there, and, and Pittsburgh you throw in there. If I said to you one of these teams is going to be a surprise 88 win team in 2024, it would be the Royals because the personnel are there with Melendez. Still like Nick Prado, obviously not great first time around, but talent there. Pasquantino, all those pitchers I just mentioned. Excuse me, they have a couple more guys coming. You know, maybe AC Lacey does straighten it out, get healthy, et cetera, et cetera. There's enough there. Also, Gavin Cross, who they took in this year's draft, not a super high ceiling guy, but a guy, advanced college hitter, a position player who should move fairly quickly, who could get there quickly. It's not crazy to look and say with some improved coaching slash development, particularly at the big league level, um, that applies more to the pitching side, I think, than the hitting side. It is not crazy to look at this Royals core and say, yeah, there's a good team in there. They just haven't gotten it working, right? They haven't pulled it out yet, but that team exists within there and they just haven't done so yet. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Let's talk about the Guardians for a moment, because when you think about the long-term picture in the AL Central, the way that system is constructed right now, they look like they're in very good shape for the next several years as well. Like they're mm-hmm. going to be in this conversation for the foreseeable future. I'm looking up and down their roster right now. They don't really have any key players they're going to lose in free agency either. I mean, they've got a couple yeah. of guys that are getting more expensive in arbitration, which could ultimately push them to other rosters via trade this offseason. That's Cleveland's which is going to happen, right? Just because of ownership there. I think you just have to expect it. Oakland East is a, a fair nickname that I've seen thrown on Cleveland. That's me. It's a nicer stadium, at least. Yeah, but... There's no sewage in whatever they're calling Jacobs Field now. The young talent they've got coming in, we thought some of these guys were going to come up and actually contribute on the roster this season. And they have not brought in those reinforcements. I think we'll see a lot of their upper-level players come through in 2023. Are they the best position team in the division if we're looking to the next three seasons? I don't know if looking much beyond that is is even worthwhile, given how many key players might be added to these organizations during that time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very high on Cleveland's future, and I think they could even end up 
trading someone significant. You know, say that it's Bieber. I'm not, this is not a prediction. I'm not saying they're going to trade Bieber specifically, but say that they said Bieber's going to get really expensive. He should. Um, you know, we're not going to sign him to a long term deal. And I mean, they've still got him. They really got, they got him for two more years. You know, those two years are going to cost them probably at least $30 million, should in arbitration. Say that they say that's the guy we've got to deal for financial reasons and we'll use one player. We're going to trade one about to be expensive player to try to fill multiple other holes. I think they could do that and still be really strong contenders. A lot of pitching coming, a lot of position player talent coming. I mean, Valera and Rokio are now already in AAA, banging on the door. I just wrote about seeing Bibby and Williams, uh, both in AA. Either of those guys could easily be up next year. I think Bibby's probably a little closer to ready. Williams has more upside, like them both a ton. I'm, there's a lot of good stuff happening there in the major league level and very close to the major league level. And they're also, and I pointed this out in uh, writing about Andres Jimenez, who really looks like a core player at this point. They're doing really good stuff on the development side. For a long time, you ask a lot of people in baseball, a lot of people in other organizations say, we don't really quite know what Cleveland's doing, but they're doing it really well. They've identified a certain type of especially college pitcher they go after in the draft and they get those guys in and they make them better. Weirdly enough, several of them have been like fourth or fifth rounders, like very specific. Obviously, they also decided we can wait to take some of these guys a little later in the draft because we're smarter than everybody else. <laughs> and you know what? That's really great. When you're a low payroll team with an owner who doesn't want to spend a lot of money, finding a core competency like that is incredibly important. And now it seems like they're doing some better things on the hitter side, at least with some of their international signees. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about what's going on there in Cleveland. It's been very, very quiet too. And we love, I know people love to criticize ownership because they won't spend, they won't spend, they won't spend. You know what? The baseball ops guys kind of across the board are doing a really good job with the limited resources they're given. The recurring thing for this season that has stood out to me, if if you put Cleveland in the playoffs and it looks like they're going to get there, it looks like they're going to win the AL Central, mm-hmm. they don't strike out. And I think that just becomes a pesky lineup to deal with, even though they're not built like a lot of the other playoff lineups. They do not have anything close to the offensive ceiling of other teams that are going to be in the postseason this year. They mm-hmm. pitch well enough. They've got a good enough bullpen. And they could just run hot at just the right time with some of oh, those yeah. secondary bats where they can actually wear opposing teams pitching down. They might have a, a team that's uniquely built to just be a thorn in the side of every team that is built better than they are right now. I'm not a super big fan of, oh, it's better to be the other team, right? Wasn't this been this whole argument? It's better to have the lowest seed in the American League this year because you're going to end up going through Cleveland. Cleveland doesn't suck. All the playoff teams are are good and have their own strengths. But Cleveland has these weird quirks about their lineup that I think will make them an absolute pain in the ass for the other teams in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a bad playoff team out there. Right, I don't think any of these teams is a pushover, and I mean, I say that knowing full well. Remember the '06 playoffs, right? The pushover in both leagues, the two pushovers ended up in the World Series, so they weren't pushovers after all. They just we thought they were. So I don't love that to begin with, but I don't look at any of the playoff teams. Certainly not any of the the division winners. I don't think any of those teams is a is going to be an easy opponent. I don't like that. Yeah, sure. Would you rather not face the Dodgers until you absolutely have to? Okay, sure. Would you rather pray someone else knocks the Yankees off first? Okay, sure. They're not unbeatable. And it's not like Cleveland is some 
soft opponent. Oh, we're facing a, you know, 79 win team in the first round. They're good. I think they're just not, I understand some, there's statistical arguments. They're not quite as good as the other playoff teams. I don't think the gap is that large. And I think a little bit of it is a bias against, you know, Cleveland's not as, their players are not as famous, right? They don't have that immediate, like, whoa, that's a tough team. We're, you know, oh, they got Aaron Judge. Oh, they've got Mookie Betts, right? Okay, maybe they're not quite like that. That's not much of an analysis to me. Some of the statistical arguments are a little more compelling, but I also think that they show that, yes, there's a gap. The gap is not as big as the arguments that, oh, you'd much rather have Cleveland in the first round would imply, right? You might have a 2%, 3% better chance against Cleveland than you would against one of the other opponents. I'm not banking on that. That's a really good way to frame it. And I do think Andres Jimenez has become the the other guy, the same way when this team he was really good has, a few yeah. years ago. It was, it was Ramirez and Lindor. Now it's Ramirez and Jimenez. He is, yeah. He's made that trade look great for Cleveland in the end when I was among the many people that thought they didn't get enough when they traded Francisco Lindor to the Mets. Turns out, I think I'm very wrong about that. Yeah, didn't we all, right? I mean, Jimenez and Rosario have combined for, what are they, at 7-8 war for yeah. the year? Now, Rosario's been a lot more in defense, which is great. He's just not become at all the hitter that I thought he was going to become, which is disappointing, obviously. But, no, I'm... I think they've and I think they've done a really nice job with Jimenez at the plate. I think they've done a nice job with Rosario in the field. I think there's still work they could do uh, to make him uh, to make Rosario more valuable uh, at the plate. Um, and it's possible he will. You know, he's just not going to get there himself. But the fact is, they have taken a trade that a lot of us didn't really like for them at the time, and it's looking pretty good. Couple of players on this roster that people might be a little less familiar with. Josh Naylor, who's you know been been on the radar for a little while, got to the big leagues pretty young, has dealt with some injuries. He's actually having a nice season. Homer away from his first twenty yes, home has. run season. It's a one seventeen WRC plus. Doesn't strike out. He, power without striking out makes him sneaky dangerous in this group. I forgot his brother too, right? His brother, I, his brother's in AAA. His brother's going to get there next year too. I thought there was a chance we'd see him this year, just given how too. great yeah. the minor league season's been for him. But that apparently is not in the cards. They could use the help. He's come on real quick. I mean, he was awful last year. I wouldn't have argued if they brought him up. I'm also not going to argue with him not bringing him up. Them saying this guy came a such a long way this year, and on a really high note, he's probably going to end up. I mean, would not shock me if he ended up their primary catcher over the course of 2023, which isn't to say he's the opening day catcher. But if we have this conversation at the end of September next year and look and say, Naylor got the majority of at-bats for them from the catcher position, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, he's a hell of an athlete. I loved him in the draft. I loved him as a prospect till last year. It's like, oh, I I mean, I thought that was one I was going to take the L on in the other direction. (laughs) Oh, he just, wow, he just isn't hitting. And you know, fortunately, yeah, I've talked to some Cleveland people. I think a lot of it was just the lost season, which is going to be the answer for a lot of players. Whatever it is, he's back. He's the guy he was supposed to be, which is great to see in general. Really great if you're a Cleveland fan. Add that to the add him to the list. And, a, and it's a draft position player success, which they have not had as much of. They've had draft pitching successes. They've had international free agent hitter successes. A draft hitter success, very good news for them. And I would even say you could probably make a similar claim about Will Benson this year. The numbers in the big leagues, he's only had like 55 plate appearances, kind of an up and down extra guy for them right now. Yep. But a triple A this year popped 17 homers in 89 games, had a 424 OBP, was stealing bases like that's that's a big step ahead for Will Benson. He's gone from 
if he'd repeated the year before, he was just done, right? He was a non, would have been a non-prospect. And he's 24. I mean, he's kind of at the point where you got to show it, but he's got a chance again. Like he's just kept himself alive, so to speak, as a, as a prospect. The other player that has popped up this year that I really knew very little about coming into the season was Oscar Gonzalez. Do you think he's a, a consistent regular for them, or is this just more of a a temporary you know, nice run from him to begin a prolonged stretch of his big league career before someone else takes over that spot? I would call him a non-core regular. Like I think he's going to play every day for somebody. They may end up being able to do better probably fairly soon. Like for example, I'm not letting him block George Valera. When Valera is ready, Valera is arguably their best prospect. It's him or Rokio. I think most people I talk to have Valera higher because there's more upside there. Rokio is sneaky good. Um, Rokio is a shortstop. Uh, when Valera is ready, I am not letting Gonzalez stand in his way. And Gonzalez is also the type of player, if I'm Cleveland, and I'm saying, you know, if they internally have decided Valera is ready, either now or May 1st, he is ready. Gonzalez is another player you put out there in trade because there's a lot of clubs that would take the low OBP slugger in right because the power is legit. And he had like 35 bombs last year in Triple H. I mean, I could, I'm like one click away from answering that question, <laughs> right? But he, he, this is what he was last year. And I think he's shown he can make enough contact that he can make this weird skill set play. Sorry, it was 31 last year in 121 minor league games. You know, to, and it was very similar. Two ninety three batting average, three twenty nine on base, in Double uh, A AA and Triple A last year. Comes to the majors this year, two ninety two batting average, three twenty five on base. This is kind of what he is. I don't love that profile, but I also recognize that there's quite a bit of value in it. And I think he plays every day for many teams, but maybe not for Cleveland because they're going to have somebody better at his very specific position. Also, yeah, it looks like a, a Miguel Andujar sort of profile, maybe with a little more in-game power where it's that, that good yeah, average low OBP. Right. You, you yep. want to play him, but you also hope you have someone better. That's a strange player type. Yeah, I agree with all of that. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about a few other players that you mentioned, Andres Jimenez. He was uh, in your column of, of players you've been wrong about so far this year. Spencer Strider, we talked about him earlier this year, and I, I think there was a little bit of skepticism because right out of the box to begin the season, he was working in relief. And then the question was, well, as a starter, is the command going to be good enough? And is is the pitch mix deep enough for him to be anywhere near as effective as he was working in long relief? Well, Flash forward to the end of the season. Yep, turns out this this actually works quite well. 202 Ks in 131 and two-thirds innings, Keith. What on earth is happening here with Spencer Strider? 
and I wrote a bit about this too, and I ended up talking to uh, one of the front office folks in Atlanta just on background. I said, did, did you guys know? And he's actually, it was interesting. If you go back to what I wrote about Strider last offseason in my Atlanta prospect rankings, I had the fastball. I said the fastball was this good, but very, very few starting pitchers can survive on fastball alone. And he wasn't going to. But the fastball has obviously played up exceptionally well over the course of this season. But what my contact in their front office was so positive about was the development of Strider's slider. And he gave the kid a lot of credit. The kid went home and really worked on it. And when he showed up in spring training this year, their reaction was, oh, this is a different guy now. Now he's gone from sort of one and a half pitches, maybe one and a quarter pitches. Now he's pretty clearly a two pitch guy. And we still have a concern over, you know, what does he, does he have the change up? Does he have that th- or some third pitch? But he's also demonstrated now over the course of a season that he can do it with those two pitches. And I think a lot of it is because the fastball is such exceptional secondary qualities. It's not just the velocity, but it's everything else about the fastball allows it to play extremely well against lefties. And he's the extreme outlier too, where his breaking ball works effectively against hitters on the other side of the plate. Very, very few pitchers can do that, especially turning over a lineup multiple times. But we've now got a full season of data that makes it look like he can. Would love to see him do it another year, but I'm also comfortable enough with what I've seen from watching him and from the data to say, no, I think this is real. I think he's an exception you can bank on. I think the idea of adding pitches or completely changing and revamping pitches is so fascinating because it it basically it rewrites a profile for a player. Yes. You had one yep. pitch, now you've got two. You had two, now you've got three. It, everything you can do is completely different with that addition. Does adding one great pitch with the slider to a, the arsenal that you had previously, does it give you more confidence in something like a changeup coming along later? Just knowing that he put the time in, found a way to get that slider to that level, it has to be worth something, but how much is it worth? How much confidence should it give you? It's such a great question. People ask me that. Readers have asked me that many times over the years. Well, he did this. Shouldn't he also be able to do that? Like, And the answer is, I don't really know. It kind of depends on the player. It also depends on what those two skills are. To me, I mean, at this point, I'm not changing anything with Strider, right? Until we see that there's an issue, you just let him go. He has a changeup. He barely uses it, but it's this formula works for him right now. If he gets to a point next year where lefties start to give him trouble, maybe you look to change something. Um, you know, I look at the development of a breaking ball and the development of a changeup or changeup-like pitch, which is often a splitter, mm-hmm. as two fairly different skill sets. And if a guy can develop one, it means he has obviously has some intellectual aptitude but not necessarily a physical facility, right? A, a slider is a power pitch and involves spin. And a changeup is very much the opposite, mm-hmm. right? That is a, a feel pitch where the last thing you want is actually a lot of spin. If, if Strider got to the point where he was having issues and the ch- changeup he's using currently isn't working, he's a guy I might try a splitter with because it's power, right? He's all power. He's not a particularly big guy. I don't know his hands are, would he be able to grip the pitch effectively? But that's probably something I would look at with him, some kind of split or split change, something in that family where, no, 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 you, you're not backing off. Just throw it hard. Just throw it hard like you throw your two primary pitches hard because I think that's less of an adjustment for him. But again, it, 
depends on the player and you you don't know. You know, it's not like in Brady Singer's case, we discussed him earlier. I think Brady Singer is going to have a real problem throwing a consistently effective changeup. It's because of his arm slot. It's just not conducive to throwing that. That's not a concern with Strider. And so I could be just completely out in left field saying, I don't know if he can throw that field, you know, to have thrown effect, more effective changeup when it's such a field pitch and a, you know, more about taking something off rather than throwing something harder. In his case, I just don't know. I guess I'll conclude by saying one thing, though. Always give me the player who's shown he can make one adjustment if I'm going to ask him to make another adjustment. I would always take that over the guy who has not shown me he can make an adjustment. Yeah, I think that goes back to the the intellectual aptitude. I would take that sort of dedication to the craft as a at least a marker of good makeup, like having having the drive to do what you need to do to get yeah. better. And that can really only be a good thing, but I, I think... It can be easy to dream on the potential. Oh, no, he's going to add this next pitch. I think it's a good way to break it down. There's the differences in throwing those pitches. It's not quite the same process to add that change up compared right. to what it was to revamp the slider. I liked one of the comments. I like, Not literally. I didn't hit the thumbs up button. But I thought one <laughs> of the comments on, on the piece was actually uh, very, very much on point. It was Robert A. I don't know if Robert also listens to the podcast, but... In your years of scouting, identifying a range of possible and likely outcomes for each player must be satisfying to see players reach and in rare cases even go beyond the high end of that range. Perhaps somewhat like a teacher or family member who sees a student exceed expectations. Thank you both for retaining the eye of a critic and for expressing your positive views of players and coaches who've achieved real breakthroughs. You'd be bored if you were right about things all the time, right? The, the world would become boring for you if that were the case. Yes, right? This isn't math where there's always a right answer now obviously there's mathematicians listening to this being like <laughs> we're still okay fine solve solve gold box conjecture okay yeah now that's not what i'm talking about right there's not this isn't a formula where you plug it in and you get an answer every time that would make what makes my job really interesting is that you can never completely get it right and you can always learn more and our general knowledge within the sport is always changing too i mean 10 years ago, discussions of spin rate, spin axis, launch angle were either non-existent or far more qualitative because we just didn't have the quantitative data to back up those discussions. So yes, that is one thing I love about the job. And to that commenter's point, do I like seeing players succeed beyond expectations? Of course I do, right? As I said in my response, these are kids. Now they're grown up, but they, they were kids who had a dream to someday play in the big leagues, play in the World Series, get the winning hit. Every time one of those guys gets called up, especially I love the videos of the guy gets first hit and then they show like parents sobbing in the stands, right? And the teammates are all excited. Like Those are the best. How can you not like that stuff? Like I have real questions if you don't like that stuff. Um why, why, why would, what could possibly make you, why, why is your heart so hard against watching some little kid's dream come true? Not many people get that. And lots of people who had that dream as children will not get to see that, will not do that, um, get to, get to the big leagues at all or, or achieve all of those things. Just getting to the big leagues in the first place, such an incredible achievement. You should be happy for them. And when players, do things I didn't think they could do or beat my expectations. People think I'm going to be upset because I was wrong. And that would be really weird and selfish. 
if you were mad at them for making you proving you wrong, that would be right? the strangest response possible. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like really bizarre. I mean, there are people like that, especially on the internet. Like, it's not about being wrong. I don't care if I'm wrong. I'm going to be wrong. I mean, got it. Talked to a scout who actually responded to my column the other day and said, I love that you do that column. You know, this is hard. We all miss. I said, yeah, you should read the comments. They never miss. They're never wrong. <laughs> he said you should ask them for their scouting reports. Yes, yeah, they go silent when I do that. It's kind of weird. It's funny how that works. Yeah. You had uh, Framber Valdez at the, the end of the piece that went up this week. And I... Mm-hmm. I think he's a tough player for me. I, I believe in him now. It took me longer than it should. I was very skeptical coming off the shortened season in 2020. I think he pitched really well in the playoffs that year, too, which you, you tack it all together. It was something more like 90 or 100 innings of this new level. And I think the reason the reason why I like to look back at players I didn't believe in or players I was wrong about is because I don't want to make the same mistake over and over. I'll probably make the same mistake twice because the problem gets presented in a different way. And I just don't recognize the problem being the same, different version of the same problem. See, this is how tricky it is. <laughs> but Framber Valdez, it was a walk rate problem. I looked at the control when he got into the big leagues and I said, nah, this isn't going to work. This guy's no, not going to be a big league starter. Same. This doesn't work for that that reason and that reason alone. You want to make him a reliever, ground ball specials out of the bullpen. Sure, it probably works there. But nah, Framber Valdez, he can't be the next uh, internal development, similar to what they did with Dallas Keuchel at the beginning of their their move to uh, being the, the Astros of of the present yeah. time, right? They, they had this internal win where they developed a guy that is a four to five win starter. It was like a seventh round pick. I saw Keuchel in college. It's like, well, it's a nice fifth starter. Right. Just a guy. Yeah. Not a Cy Young contender, but I think that's sort of the development arc that Framber Valdez has followed. And, and sometimes being, it's almost in a weird way, being wrong about Dallas Keuchel or seeing what Dallas Keuchel did years ago mm-hmm. did open my mind sooner to the possibility that I could be wrong about Framber Valdez. Yes. And, you know, Christian Javier, I think, also goes into that bucket. Somebody asked kind of why I didn't mention him. And, you know, honestly, the biggest reason was I only had so many guys I could talk. Like the column was just getting longer and longer and the D- and the reasons were getting narrower and narrower. But I do think the Astros have done a pretty interesting job with a, with a lot of these starters who were not super highly regarded by the industry. In fact, Luis Garcia was one who I did have on my um, top 100, at least his last year of prospect eligibility, and who, but generally, like a lot of people in the industry, when I circulated my list to other teams, is really? We got him in as a reliever. You know what? The Astros have done a pretty nice job with guys who other teams thought were relievers. In this case, all three, I think, international free agent signees uh, and turning them into pretty good big league starters, even if it's just twice through the order starters. They're starters. That counts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mentioned Valdez also as a little bit of a proxy for, hey, the Astros, you know, they've lost a lot of guys, too. They're still good because and they they had years of pretty unproductive drafts, too, but they're still doing some things really well on the development side that have allowed them to keep this team uh, as very strong contenders to win the division and to advance in the playoffs, despite I don't think it's wrong to say it's a bit of a no name rotation after Justin Verlander. Casual fans probably couldn't name another starter there. Obviously, people listening to this podcast probably do know all these guys. If you play fantasy, you do, but right, it's not Garrett Cole anymore. 
Yeah, it's not a mainstream rotation, even though it's a very good one. And I think people are somehow sleeping on the Astros. As we record this, 99 wins this season. They're four wins behind the Dodgers. Everyone loves the Dodgers. The Dodgers are unbeatable. The Dodgers are one of the most amazing teams we've ever seen. All the time, yes. I've talked about my reservations about the quality of the, the AL West. It's the Astros, the Mariners, and then three really bad teams right now. So, yeah. you know, you can you can pick apart that 99 a little bit. But I think if you're ignoring them, you are going to be uh, sorely disappointed by how good they look in the postseason. <laughs> I would agree. Yeah, that's a it's a better team. Again, it's a little bit of the anonymity problem of Cleveland. It's just easy to one look those teams and say they're not that good, right? There's not as much name value necessarily. And I'm not even necessarily being critical of anyone in particular. I think that's human nature. Like there's a there's a familiarity bias there. Where it's like, I don't know as many of these guys. What do you what do you mean Framber Valdez is a four win starter? Who? <laughs> Obviously, I didn't say who, you didn't say who, but there's a bit of that in your brain, right? You didn't have him in there in your mental database as being that kind of guy. Honestly, Andres Jimenez, we were a good bit all the way through the season when I looked and was like, holy cow, when did that happen? Yeah. And then started tracking him because I'm also always looking for who's – I write this column every year. So – Early in the season, it's like, all right, who's going into that column this year? It's funny. At one point, I thought Tommy Edmond was going to be in the column. And then by about June 1st, I was like, nah, he's who I thought he was. <laughs> Edmond was kind of funny because he came up yesterday. We started putting together nominees for this non-existent award, most improved player, right? Sure. And we decided that it didn't make sense to include players who came back from major injuries or players who were really good before and then just got back to that level. Like Alex Bregman isn't. Alex Bregman's a very good player. He's a great player that was hurt for a while. Now he's back. He's not a most improved player. But Tommy Edmond, if you look at year-over-year changes, quietly is over five war. And that's easily the best he's been so far. It's only his second full season. So that's part of this, too. And I think a lot of that extra value, though, is coming from his defense. It's his defense. And that gets lost, too, right? As as an offensive profile, he's, he's a little better. 6.3 6.3 war on baseball reference. I, I got to admit, like, that's the point where I'm like, really? <laughs> well, because he had this unbelievable April, right? That's where I was like, oh, damn. Well, I know who's headlining my players I was wrong about, Colin, clearly. Yeah, he came out of April doing everything, right? 395 on base, 486 slug. There was some more. It was a lot. It was probably not quite as much. Um, Power, you know, a couple of home runs very early in the season, but it's like he's getting on base, he's hitting the ball harder, check, 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 check. He kept that going a little bit into May, and then, right, then it's been, okay, he's bounced back a little bit in September, but let me look here. From May 1st, totally stealing this from Joe Sheehan, who mentioned this at some other point. He was talking about the Cardinals' offense being, you know, not quite as good as we thought it was. May 1st till now, 314 on base, 396 slug. I understand offense is down across the board. That's not much of an offensive player. He can really play defense and they've used him well and they've moved him around to a couple of spots and he's played good defense at multiple positions too. The Cardinals, they're tied with the Mets in terms of Team WRC Plus at 114. So they're mm-hmm. up there with the league's best. They're within arm's reach of the Yankees and the Blue Jays, which is just not, that's not what I would have expected at the beginning of the season. That is a, a better run producing unit yep. than I gave them credit for. 
Some of that's Paul Goldschmidt being MVP level Paul Goldschmidt again. How about that? Where did that come from? We should all have a second act that good. I mean, he was never bad. Pride of Delaware. <laughs> he never he never dropped off to the point where we're like, oh, Paul Goldschmidt, that guy. No, but you thought he'd settled into, right? Okay, this is, this is you know, stage two, right? Older position yeah. player, but, you know, still be productive for the rest of his contract, right? That's not worried, but did I, I didn't think he was going to. And you never think of a player who's at you know into his thirties. He's thirty four. Had to double check. I was like, isn't he like thirty five? Yeah, he's thirty four. Swinging back up like that, he's gonna have an eight war season. This is his best offensive season ever by WRC plus. He has a one eighty two WRC plus. How cool was that? Yeah, I just thought we were at the he's twenty. 30% 30% better than league average. Every year he'll lose a little bit because yep. everyone does. Nope, nope. Be very curious what next year looks like. And yeah. also what projection systems do with him, right? Because, you know, any decent projection system has guys losing as they age. and But they're also generally built around some kind of weighting of the previous couple of seasons where the most recent season is the most heavily weighted. Yeah, that's going to cause a bit of a problem. And I think a lot of, pe- a lot of projection systems are going to have him dropping kind of a good ways back. And they'll be, you know, people will be completely calm and rational about the whole thing, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. always are. Yeah. The thing you can see right now, if you look at his Fangraphs page, there are rest of season slash lines. I know we're only talking about a dozen games, but I think the slash line gives you a good baseline of where the next season's projection might be. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a lot of disagreement across the projection systems they have posted, which is unusual for a player with a track record as long as Goldschmidt's. Usually the longer a player is in the league, I think you get that tighter window for where each projection rests on a player. When a player Mm -hmm. breaks into the league, that's when you expect to see a lot more variance. Uh, The Bat-X, which I think is a really interesting system that Derek Cardi put together, that one uses the most modern information. StatCast data is in there. A lot of things that aren't necessarily incorporated into the other projections are there, and that's the most pessimistic of all. And mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense to me because it's interesting. When I look at some of the underlying numbers for Goldschmidt, I still see numbers that are really good. And I, I would have thought, if anything, that system would be the most aggressive uh, in in the positive direction for Goldschmidt for next year. So yeah, we'll see where where those numbers fall. But uh, that that's a season that probably deserves more attention outside of St. Louis than it has received. It's received plenty of attention in yeah. fantasy circles. If you got Paul Goldschmidt where he was going. Uh, you got basically a first-round caliber hitter in the fifth or sixth round. You're pretty excited about that. Yep. We are going to go on our way out the door. If you'd like a subscription to The Athletic, you can get them for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend. <laughs>